Hello and welcome to our Women in Research podcast series. I'm Sharon Parker, a Kathleen Fitzpatrick Australian Laureate Fellow and the lead for this series. I'm honoured to be talking today with Chinua Wu, who is a director of the ARC Centre of Excellence for Design. She's also a professor of material science and engineering at Monash University. Chinua is a world leading expert in aero engine and aircraft materials and their manufacturing, in particular 3D printing. Let's listen to what Chinua shared with us. She started by telling us about some of the interesting things she has been working on this week. So our current research is mainly look at 3D printing of metals, but it covers the 3D printing of metals across the whole supply chain, the entire supply chain. So it's really about how to develop the 3D printing process, how to feed it into the right material, and how to qualify. But at the end of the day, for any commercial production, the cost is a bigger issue. Mm. So the customer can use it, not use it. Everything is about cost. So we have to go back then from the beginning to end and say, how do we minimize the cost? The cost is about how do you produce the powder most efficiently, high quality but cheap, and how do you speed up the 3D printing process but also retain 100% quality assurance. And so every step is about to say, how do we do it, and then how do we do it cheaply? What do you like about the area of material science? This moment, all our research is focused for aerospace application Mm -hmm. and biomedical application. And uh, all the applications are actually underpinned by fundamental research. And that's why we enjoy it. Absolutely a lot of fun. First of all, whatever fundamental research we do, actually we know why we are doing it. You know, we have a purpose. But when we get it right, so we, we put it into application. Normally, say for all the arranging components, we have the material has to survive for 25 years under some high temperature, high stress. Those are controlled by the fundamental microstructure mm-hmm. and the phases, the mm-hmm. stability, the yeah. ability to sustain certain stress, you know, or this microstructure change. If we want to deliver that application, we have to provide all the fundamental research, all the fundamental requirement to control the microstructure, to deliver that stability. And that's really what metallurgists most excited about okay. it. So whereabouts are your products used? So obviously somewhere on an aeroplane. We already passed engine test uh, some of the components with a French engine company called Saffron. We actually passed four components in 2014. This moment we are helping them commercialize the production Mm -hmm. with 3D printing Mm -hmm. for several air engine components. But we also qualified the titanium alloy and the 3D printing process with Chinese large civil aircraft company, Permac. And so now 29 titanium parts 
uh, flying in Sinawana wow. aircraft. So they had, it had a maiden flight this May. And did you go and join the maiden flight? I, I didn't go, but later on I went with yeah. our premier, Victoria premier. Oh, wow. Yeah. Fantastic. To see their aircraft and because they want to launch a bigger collaboration with us. So our premier actually went with me wow. just for this project. That must um, be so satisfying. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> they, they're going to do a lot more work with us. So we hope we will start delivering more in Victoria. Wow, that's fantastic. I really love to know more about your background. So how is it that you came to be sitting where you are? So let's go right back to your childhood. Where did you grow up? What did your parents do? I was born in a, literally in a small village in China, in mm-hmm. Jiangsu province. My parents, actually, none of them are academic. They're all just ordinary people. My father was he's bright. I went to a town school. The town school is quite high standard mm-hmm. school. In 1979, that was the first year the national entrance examination back to normal. Ah. So I was the only graduate Wow. succeeded past the national criteria went to university i liked physics but i didn't want to do theoretical physics so i wanted some practical applications so i chose a subject metal physics in central south university mm-hmm. and that's basically is the best materials department in china mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and so i studied that and then after graduation i went to institute of metal research chinese academy of sciences to further my education to do your phd was that at that point in or? that point that point Actually, there wasn't any PhD degree awarded in China. Oh, so only wow. master's degree. But we did a three years master's degree. Then afterwards, I stayed in the institute. That was the best institute for material in China. I worked there for five years. Then they sent me to University of Birmingham as a visiting scholar from Academy of Sciences to further study. When I was in Birmingham, I got a PhD scholarship to study my PhD. Then you would have been very much advanced compared to yes, other uh, PhD students, I uh, imagine, with all that background. Certainly, I was the oldest. <laughs> I went to UK when I was 28, so it's quite old. And then I studied my PhD, I think from 30 years old. I got PhD, then afterwards I did a couple of years postdoctor. Then I moved to a group and become a group leader. That group, only two or three people. By the time I left Birmingham, that group has been for 10 years. The university top three earners for wow. continues to for 10 years in terms of research funding. Wow. I was involved constantly in about 20 projects at the same time. I mean, could you ever imagine when you were a young girl in your village in China that you would become this amazing professor in material <laughs> science? Did you ever have that vision for yourself? I had it when I was in school. I had a tutor primary school tutor. He was extremely worldly and wise. He's always encouraged the student to have an ambition, big ambition, basically asking you whatever you do, you have to keep moving. There's something he said in in Chinese where basically he said, life is almost like sailing a boat against the water. If you don't go forward, you will go back down. Mm. 
That's so very that, wise. Yeah, so he's been saying that to us during our high school period. Yeah. At that time, it's very difficult. You know, we, we had a very short time to review our subject, to study hard, to pass a national exam entrance. So we yeah. were still like small town school, not really big cities of school. So, yeah. so everything is not the high standard. But we had some good teachers, luckily, because of the Cultural Revolution. Some of those teachers were send it to countryside. Ah, That's why they okay. end up in That's our town. Yeah, yeah. In our town in school. So there were some advantages some to the advantages, cultural revolution. Yeah, yeah so yeah. we benefited from those yeah. good teachers. But this yeah. particular teacher is a Chinese literature teacher. He's our class tutor. He is so well respected. He's just he's always very ambitious for the student, wants student to look far away rather than, you know, be homely always wanted us to go away, do big things. I think that that really forged our ambition to go outside and do some. It is amazing how one person can have such a big impact. Yes, it is. Have have you ever gone back to visit him or do you keep any connection with him? Unfortunately, he died. Before he died, I went back every year. The first thing is always go to see him. Really? He must have been very proud of you. He he was. He was very proud of me. But also, I, I really treasure him and a teacher like that, how he influenced yeah. of my life. And yeah. I think he knew how we're going to perform almost. That's that an amazing story. Yeah. Yes. Wow. So then you were in Birmingham and you, you worked there. And then you came to Monash. Was that the next step? Yes. In Birmingham, I actually had a massive laboratory mm. built up over mm. the years. I always found it difficult to change jobs because nobody, no other university can afford to duplicate my laboratory. Because of the expensive equipment? Yeah, yeah. and also the scale of it. But when I was in Birmingham, I worked a lot with Rolls-Royce because we are just a half hour from Rolls-Royce. So Birmingham University is one of the three universities, Rolls-Royce call it Materials University Strategic Partner. So we are responsible for titanium is our, our main topic. Mm-hmm. Titanium alloy development and the process development and anything else nobody is doing. And then Cambridge was doing the single crystal microalloy. Okay. And yeah. Swansea is doing the testing, creep or fatigue testing. Birmingham was responsible for the titanium or anything not single crystal alloy development and the process de- development. Yeah, so it's yeah, mainly yeah. in my group. But uh, for the further 10 years before I left, I started work with a lot of European partners and mm-hmm. also get into aircraft industry like with Airbus and also with European Space Agency and Saffron as the French engine company. Mm-hmm. So expanded that into a lot of partners with a lot of partners. I was in 14 European projects in total. Wow. So it was it will interrupt a lot. But by 2000, the Austrian Aerospace Center for Excellence for Light Metals, they were looking for directors. They contacted me 12 months before, but I never thought I would leave. I think I was recommended by some international colleagues right. and when they were headhunting yep. somebody. But by late 2010, when they contacted me again, the interesting thing was, 
I was applying for a national center in UK uh, for additive manufacturing. Yeah. They want to focus the funding to go to individual place rather than everywhere. So they want to choose one. But in the end, they choose to fund the plastics. Uh, they didn't choose shortlist uh, my metals. By that time, then Monash contacted me, the headhunter contacted me again. So we will contact you. But a year ago, we don't know whether you would be interested in this job. I said, yes, I'm coming. <laughs> <laughs> so that time, because I, I realized if I don't get the fundamental research money from the UK, then for 10 years, there isn't any point for yeah. me to stay anymore. Right. So that's yeah. a point I, I decided to leave and uh, come here. But one condition was to say, I asked Monash, give me some funding to duplicate my laboratory because I wanted to do my own, continue my own research. And then Monash said, yes. yes. And uh, I also be able to bring some colleagues, absolutely yeah. critical colleagues, three yeah. of them, to yeah. come with me to run the laboratories. So when they came, and uh, in less than 12 months' time, we build up the laboratory. Now this center has about 30 people again. So majority is fully funded by external funding. Wow. So just so uh, they made an investment in you, but it's well and truly paid back because you've built a great center here. I yeah. hope so. Within the first four years, I got $26 million research fund. Wow. <laughs> I think Monash industry. will be like... <laughs> we made the right choice. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> I hope so. So I just want to talk a little bit about your industry partnerships. I'd love to hear your thoughts about how you manage those relationships. I actually find it's quite easy to work with industry partners. I think that the key is you have to understand their needs and also you have to understand their pressure. Uh, this probably is because my training with Rolls-Royce, you know, working with them for so long and so hard. It's mm. very difficult to work with them because they have a tight schedule. A lot of things are not negotiable. Mm. If they want to have an engine test a certain day, you know, there's so much cost into it. You have to work up to that schedule. It's not up to me to negotiate. But at the same time, industry, whatever they do, has to be affordable to be compatible with the current process in order to overtake the current, replace the current mm -hmm. supply chain. So that means has to be 30% better. Everything has to be 30% better and ideally to be cheaper. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, there's no chance. So you're saying when you work with industry, you have to understand their need for speed, yeah, for cost, yeah, and for cost. innovation and something better. Yes, it has to be substantially better but also the cost need to be similar to the current process. Otherwise, mm. they can't implement it. If mm. you want them to change the whole supply chain to accommodate a material process, it's yeah. massive investment. Most of the time, it's $20 million. It has to be worth it. Therefore, so when we do research, we have to think, you know, whatever we do, would we help them to deliver a better and cheaper product? And secondly, we think they are expert. They are expert in the application, but most of people working under enormous pressure to deliver product, they don't really have time to think. So if we can think ahead of them, help them to think ahead of what yep. they might need, yep. how they should develop next product, then you produce the, the source to them, you say, would you like this one? Then they will absolutely love you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so sometimes we think, oh, because you must know everything what you are doing. So you just need to come tell me what you are doing. 
but that's not necessarily the case. Most of them, you go to the European companies, some of them work so hard. One person do three people's job. They don't really have time to think sometimes. So they can think what they need immediately, but they can't think what ahead, how they should do it, what's the way forward, whether there is a possibility or not. Until you tell them there is this possibility, they can't think that way. As academic, we have time. We have students. So if we could do those work to follow their future needs, to give them the opportunity to look, this is possible, then they they feel, oh, all we need is just give you money. That's simple. (laughs) (laughs) And then that's great for attracting students and postdocs. Exactly. That's really interesting. So the added value is the the time that academics have got to think and do that more fundamental work, presumably. Yes, it has to be fundamental work. A lot of academics are... They're mistaken. The industry work are boring, not scientifically worthy. I think that's wrong. So what would you say to those academics? Like if, if somebody said, a young, a young academic said, no, I don't want to get involved in industry because it's just practical and immediate and boring. I think that it's just their misunderstanding. They haven't really talked to industry partner or not the right industry partner. Most of scientific research actually is required for industry. Mm-hmm. It just depends on where you're going to apply for it. You see, for publication, sometimes we can choose the topic whatever we think is publishable. And in terms of properties we deliver as an as outcome to publish, we just need one property. But for industry application, Sometimes they need the 10 properties mm. all together and also yeah. need to be cheap. You know? yeah. <laughs> so sometimes when we talk about high temperature stability, you know, for academic research, we can add gold, platinum, anything into the metal. Those metals, very easy to stabilize the material, yeah. any expensive alloys, elements. But in reality, if it's expensive, you can't use it. So therefore, yeah. you have to go back to the cheapest elements and make them stable. Does that sort of challenge, does that push you to do fundamental research? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. That's where the hard science is. Yeah. So in terms of cheap material, in it, how do you make that work at a high temperature yeah. and make it stable? Unless you really understand the fundamental aspect, yeah. you can't yeah. really provide a solution. So it's extremely challenging to provide the useful industry result and a viable, economically viable result in terms of scientific research. So it's very hard. Yeah. Uh, and also industry partner would demand you do it on schedule yeah. <laughs> and deliver whatever you said. Not necessarily say you have to succeed every time, but you have to deliver whatever you said you're going to do. Yeah, okay. You know, so, so I think yeah. there's a time constraint, there's a pressure. So on that basis, I really think it's because of that a lot of academics don't want to do it. If you just do it randomly, do whatever you like and publish a paper, there's no pressure. So basically you do it for fun. But I think from... But what's the advantage of the pressure for an academic career? I think that the pressure actually is a part of your experience and also it's part of your ability. If you experience the pressure and then then you understand why there is such pressure. For us, the pressure basically is the end user wants technology. If mm. possible, please give me next year yeah. <laughs> so I can use it. Yeah. But on the other hand, even they don't ask for it, you wish your product to be used yeah. as early as yeah. possible. So you want to put a pressure on it yeah. 
to succeed soon. So I, I think that helps us to prioritize our research and prioritize our time and learn how to manage our project, the development research yeah. properly. I think it's everybody should work under a certain pressure because that improves your efficiency yeah. significantly. That's great. Do you find that there are big centres overseas that have a lot more resources and things like that, or are you really well resourced here? I'm just wondering how you are able to compete effectively or publish quickly and effectively compared to competitors around the world. I think the investment from Australia, especially the capital investment, is extremely important. I think if you have a good equipment Australian in terms of talents and manpower, we can easily recruit and train them. If we have a good equipment as a start point, yeah. then it's very easy for us to ramp up the yeah. research to be internationally level, then yeah. become a leading. To become a leading, I really think requires industry collaboration. Otherwise, you just do your fundamental research sometimes. There isn't too many variables in, into the research. But when you work with industry, it suddenly becomes much broader. Yeah. You know, so you have a different aspect of yeah. this topic. Yeah. All require you to be the best in the world. Yeah. Then you create a comprehensive research environment. And then that, that's very easy to put you at the forefront of the scientific research. And also because the challenges from the industry... Sometimes, as I said, the industry gives you these needs, always new, always difficult. If yeah. it's not difficult, it will be done already. So if it hasn't been done, that means extremely difficult. And that really pushes your research yeah. into a, a depth you never yeah. done before. That's really interesting. So it's not about just disseminating knowledge you've already got to industry. It's co-producing the knowledge. It is. Yeah. It is co-producing. And is interdisciplinary collaboration important in your world? I think I saw in your CV that you work with lots of different disciplines. Is, is that yes. right? The interdisciplinary is absolutely important. And also, is, I think the international collaboration is important. The interdisciplinary, for, for me, you know, we are metallurgists. We can only do the materials bit. But in terms of simulation and design, mechanical engineering, yeah. that's a lot better than me. So I don't like reinvent the wheel to learn from them. I'd rather they do it. They would do much better, so we, we move a lot better. If any research group wants to be international leading, they have to collaborate rather than duplicate other people to learn it. Whatever you learn is still second best. But it's a lot better to say you partner with other people. That's their subject. Yeah. Then you're always the best. Our subject requires that yeah. partnership. But what I also found that's interesting, over the years we had a lot of interns or PhD students from different countries, from France, from Italy, from Russia, from all of Germany, all those countries. We found that those interns or students, they really have different strengths and attributes. What we found that the French, we had a French interns, mm-hmm. he's mathematics background is outstanding. So we normally do the process optimization, we just do empirically. We will make hundreds of samples to optimize mm-hmm. one parameter. But use his mathematics model, we only need 13 examples, just so quick, you know. So this is the benefit. So harnessing the talent from around the world yeah, is what you're doing, basically. Absolutely. Yeah. The Russians, they have absolutely outstanding physical metallurgy background. Wow. 
They yeah. are really, really strong, yeah. physical, metallurgical background. Yeah. So you end up with all this fusion, then you suddenly you end up with really powerful programs to yeah. move forward. Oh, that sounds like a fantastic recipe. Yeah. <laughs> so I want to turn now more to you and how you manage your career, I suppose, if you manage it. So we've already talked about one very important mentor in your life. Have you had other mentors on your journey? Yes, I had uh, other mentors. When I was in Birmingham, I had mentors for the the, the last 10 years that I was there. I had a professor who was absolutely outstanding. And how did that professor help you? What sort of role did he or she play? I think that his name is Mike Loretta. He is a physical metallurgist, they could say. I think it's more in terms the logic into research mm-hmm. in physical metallurgy. And that's how I think I learned. He had a couple of hundred PhD students graduate. Really? Yes. Wow. A lot of world's famous titanium experts were his PhD right. student. So sometimes when we get together, go to a conference, they show each other our work. Some of them just couldn't stop laughing because <laughs> they can all see the way we learned yeah. how to do the research, you know, <laughs> how to do it seamlessly, how to do it comprehensively. We all learned from him. Yeah. Basically, says, how do you do your research properly? Which is really pleasing. And also, I think that forged the way how I do research. Yeah, oh, that's um, fantastic. Yeah. And what about, are there many women in this career? And how, how has your experience been as a female in it, what I'm guessing is quite a male-dominated career? It's It's been very hard. Mm. I could say very hard. Especially in aerospace industry, in air engine industry, it's extremely hard. What have been some of the challenges? I think most of the time they don't really, not, not everybody respects you, I guess, mm. but some of them do because they see we are undervalued and mm. they feel we do so much better, so we get appreciated by some of them. But most of them probably don't. They basically think you are you are a woman, you know, this is men's world. So it's been very hard. I think I also worked very hard at trying to do my best, really. Mm. That's all we can do. We do our best. How do you respond when somebody is not necessarily respecting your expertise? I basically think if it doesn't work at this place, if it doesn't work on this place, Part of the pitch, I go other part of the pitch. Say, so, okay, if you don't appreciate it, I work with somebody else. If I don't get appreciated here, I will be appreciated somewhere else when people yeah. can judge me a little bit fairly. And it's always the case. So I, sometimes you've had to walk away from a relationship and say, I'm yes. going to go and work with someone else. Yes. I don't think we should be beaten by this disrespect because we know the world's are consisted of all sorts of people. It doesn't mm. matter. Even the male dominated, I'm sure they don't feel 100% appreciated by everybody right. either. So we just look at that as a fact and say, okay, if that's a world, we just have to understand that's a situation. Just do your best. If you meet this person, doesn't appreciate your next person, well. I mean, it sounds like it makes you more determined <laughs> Yeah, yes, yes, yeah. So I, I I really don't care if yeah. sometimes whatever the opinion is their opinion, whatever I do, the outcome, 
uh, produce this the outcome that's a fact whether yeah. you like it or not it's yeah. a fact you yeah. know yeah. and I yeah. feel if I've done my best I feel satisfied I've yeah. produced this fact you recognize or not you yeah. know so I think that we have to accept the world is not perfect but when I moved to Australia I found Australia is a lot better actually really it's a lot better what, than the UK or than the UK oh, right. than the okay. UK that's it's interesting. a lot better there's a lot of emphasis on diversity in fact, I think that in Australia is a lot better than than UK. Mm. Australia probably is a little bit more in terms of opportunities, not as much as UK because it's smaller. Yes, yeah, smaller. Yeah, the UK yeah. is a lot more industry, but in terms of treating women or diversity, I, I actually feel Australia is a lot better. I think I made the right decision yeah. to come here. <laughs> <laughs> I think you did too. <laughs> yeah. I was going to ask you a question about your strengths and what strengths you feel that you have that have helped you in your career. I think I can see one, which is your persistence and determination. Um, <laughs> yes. What other things do you think have really helped you to be successful in your career? Oh, I know the answer straight away. Okay. The only talent I had, I think I have, is actually is to recruit good people and keep them around me. And I always believe it doesn't matter how hard I work, how well I work, I only have one pair of hands. So really the delivery, the achievement, it's really depend on the team. So therefore, uh, if I can keep a good team and uh, we can succeed. And if you have no team, then you can't do anything yeah. really. So I found I'm blessed. I always been able to keep very good people around me. And I try to look after them as much as I could. But I think it's critical to have a vibrant team and have the talents to support you 100%. Mm. So sometimes when I travel, I don't really need to worry about because those team, I don't even need to tell them what to do. We have a meeting, they go away, do whatever they need to do. They don't need me to tell them every day. They just do it. So I was going to ask you in terms of your, because you do have an important management role running the centre, in terms of your style of management, how would you describe your style? I'm more hands-off person. I give them account numbers and I um, let them do whatever they want to do. So... I have the experience when I give, even when I was Birmingham, I give my postdoctors, PhD students that can't they working on. None of them overspent. They always trying to save the money for me. From then I'm very, very relaxed. So I just give them the count and they, I said, this is the money you need to deliver that rest. It's up to you <laughs> how you want to spend it. But nobody overspent, so I don't need yeah. to be there, you know, monitor every penny. They can look after it. Yeah. So you get good people and then you trust them. I trust them. They always, I think, appreciate the trust. So they look after not just the money, look after everything they need to do. is almost like their own business. It has it, it become their business. Yeah. So like running the laboratory, what's happening over the weekend, maybe need to change a part or, or do what. They never tell me. They just come do it themselves because they know that has to be done. So I don't need to tell them. They don't need to tell me either. Yeah. They just so that's it. real commitment, isn't it, and yeah. ownership. What about in terms of homework balance? I don't know whether you have children. Do you have children? I have a son who just started working. He studied in Imperial College for chemical engineering, wow. graduate last year. This year he started working in KPMG. Oh, 
oh, Harry wow. Potter. Gosh. Yeah, he, he loves it. He always said in the past, I travel so much when I get home and when he wanted to talk to me, I just focused talking with, with my husband about work. I hardly give him time to talk about his life. So I've been thinking about that right. a lot, you know. Yeah. So I'm trying to improve myself, become a better mother. But I think sometimes, because we have so many responsibilities, it's difficult to be perfect on everything yeah. at the time. I think it's impossible. It's impossible, <laughs> yes. So I can only, um, I can only try. I only try. So what about when your son was little? How did you cope with the juggle of high-pressure work? That's terrible. That's probably the worst time in my life. Okay. Because I, I was doing PhD when I had my son, and I made a terrible mistake. That time I thought my study PhD is so important to me. It's like life, you know, I have to do it. So I took my son to nursery when he was two months old. Do you feel bad about that? I absolutely feel bad about it. I, now I think that that was the worst thing I've ever done. I still remember I put him on the nursery floor. They shut the gate and he just about be able to crawl to me and pull yeah. my trousers, you know, and scream. And I had to turn my head and walk away. Yeah. But turned out nursery was very good for children, actually. They have a routine in their yeah, life, yeah, and he yeah. gets so tired yeah. during play. Yeah. So when he gets home and I put him into bed at 8 o'clock, he sleeps, and until next day, 8 o'clock in the morning, he had that routine until he was 8 years old. So, so why do you think great. it was a mistake? Because it sounds like it was quite a reasonable thing to do. But I, I think the kids grow up so quickly and if you think as a what's most important for mother is really the time the mother and children spend together i only did it two months now i look all my female phd students or postdocs come talk to me but then maternity leave yeah. i always encourage them stay as long as you need yeah. don't don't rush you know yeah. because for a lifetime stay with children yeah. It's only once, actually, yeah. in a lifetime. Yeah. I really regret. I, I wish I stayed like six months or 12 months. But that time, to finish my PhD was just so important, you yeah. know. It's like, really, it's like my, my lifeline. Yeah. And I just did it. But that was the thing I really regret yeah. in my life. It's hard, isn't it? Because, yeah. you know, chances are if you had taken the time with your son and not finished your PhD, you know, you'd probably regret that. So yeah. it's hard sometimes, isn't it? What I'm really impressed about is that you are then saying to your female postdocs and your female PhD students, take as long as you need. You know, that's very generous because some people would say, oh, well, I didn't need long, so you don't need long. But you, you have a different attitude. I think sometimes when we look at those things as short term, you feel the time is such pressure, you have to do things. But when you look at lifetime, you know, it's a long time. Then you come back a few months, does it really make a difference? Probably doesn't. But to children and parent relationship, that is important. The benefit of hindsight, yes, <laughs> isn't benefit, it? <laughs> yes, I wish I had an opportunity to go back and do it again. <laughs> well, this is why we're doing these interviews, yeah. so that young women can watch and, and hear people like you saying, you know, okay, it feels like a lot of time yeah. in the moment, but yeah. in a whole career, it's yeah. just a few months. Yeah, so it's just have a the few time. Yes. Yeah. 
So that's great. I'd love to talk to you about how do you manage your time because you must have many, many demands. So I'm really curious, how do you find time to do your writing and your research on top of managing people and dealing with industry and all those things? It is a very difficult. Most of the time when I'm on aircraft, I'm working, travelling, I'm working. When I was in Birmingham, I got up 7 o'clock. I worked until 10 o'clock, mm-hmm. six That's days a, a day. week wow. for 15 years. It was very hard. But when I came here, it's a lot better because I had team, much bigger team yep. to support me. So I think at this moment, I luckily have some you know, left hand, right hand yep. to, to support me. So, yep. so it's a lot better. I think it's really about have a team probably save me. If yeah. you don't have a team, I, I think nobody can cope with it. So it's really about find the right support and help out. Luckily, I have a couple of those people who can help me to do some of the things, and also I trust them. So that's really critical. If I lose one of those... So you have some key people that yeah, really help. I, I will yeah, I feel yeah. it's quite difficult to cope with. And at this moment, I'm in a stage... I think I probably will lose somebody. Right. And I really feel devastated. But I think that's really, that's the key. So having that team comes have back to them again. Yeah, yeah, yes. Do you have a sort of routine with your, I don't know if this is true for you, but finding time to write is always the difficulty. Do you have a routine for writing? In the past, when I first came here, first three years, all my time almost on writing, non-stop writing. Right. That's why I was writing so many proposals. That's why I got a lot of money. But uh, because now i got big funding, so yeah. I thought I'm going to pause a little bit. I'm going to focus on other things. That's why I'm focusing on more on on commercialization yeah. and we, we have weekly meeting group meeting every Monday two o'clock start every week so we get students to talk about what they are doing and then a couple of people give presentations many I want to train them to how to present especially to industry partner or in conferences so how do they present I think mm. so most of our my group students of course they present quite well mm. because of the training Mm. You know, for industry partner, they are very busy. If you can't attract them, attract their attention in the in the first two minutes, mm. they are off. They lose interest. Yeah, they lose interest. <laughs> so it's important that to train students. So yeah. I, I basically, this allow me to have a little bit more efficient time with them to supervise them, almost like a group every yeah. week. Yeah. And individually, they can come to see me, but then need much less time. So sort of group supervision, yeah. almost. Yeah, and yeah, that's that's a really good idea. Yeah. Can I just ask you about times when you've had setbacks, when things have been tough? How do you keep going? Yes, there are those times now and then, very tough times. You just feel seems everything is against you. Those sort of times, I think, luckily, once it's passed, you get better. I think in those times, sometimes it's good to have a few good colleagues to yeah. talk to, friends yeah. to talk to. So like here, we have especially the senior managers, if they can talk to you, that's really, really helpful. Mm. So I had a few of those, I'm blessed with some of the senior managers and colleagues. They've been, since I arrived here, they've been mentoring or interested in what I was doing mm. to support me. So sometimes I would, if it's really, really difficult, I give one of them a call, talk yeah. to them. 
then yeah. afterwards, like give give some time, then things will improve basically. Yeah. Yeah. But at that lower point, I think it is important because for us, you could say we are every day we are doing some sort of adventure, you know, trying yeah. to find a path yeah. which nobody has. Which it's is like hard. hard. Yeah. It's yeah. like jungle, so it can be lonely. So I think have friends, but those friends almost like mentors, but also be able to you are able to open. To yeah. them, actually, is critical. It's really, it's really critical. Yeah, that's great. What, what do you think the universities should be doing to help women? Because, as you would know, it's often you know there's enough female PhD students and postdocs, but as they go up the ranks, there are fewer and fewer women. And even in in subjects like yours, even maybe PhDs, there's not so many women. I don't know. So mm. What do you think universities should be doing? If anything, I think I think university should champion the diversity, especially the put the female into senior roles. It's not that they can't do a lot of time. Is can they be given the opportunity? I I believe opportunity. You know the example is you look at the French uh, president in you know, the election. You know you put a young guy there, Macron never done a big political job. Give him a presidency. He gradually pinned yeah. it after four years. Yeah. You know, he he become a great politician. Yeah. So I think it's it's all about opportunity. You yeah. know, maybe you put a fifty people there. You know, each one of them they can all do a presidency. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe yeah. I think most of them can. It's really about opportunity. That's I a really think, good point. Yeah. yeah. So uh, most most people will rise to the occasion <laughs> with a bit of support. Yeah, you yeah. have to, don't you? Yeah. Just, so I think it's opportunity really. So if university can help create those opportunities, yeah, then yeah, I, I think. Uh, and having yeah. senior women, or women in senior roles, is part of that. Yeah. Yes, yes, I, I think so. And also trying to support women into senior roles. Yeah, you know, yeah, go yeah. out and support them to yeah. do senior yeah. jobs. So if you could know what you know now and go back in time to when you were a younger academic, what would you do differently? I mean, you've already said one thing around your son. Yeah. You would take that time out with him. What else would yeah. you do differently? I think to find a good mentor, find a good academic mentor is really critical. I, I think whatever we do uh, as a junior academic, if we just do it ourselves, sometimes takes a lot of detours to learn the trade, yeah. basically. So yeah. if we have a good mentor, but this mentor is really need very very close supervision. And then you basically cut all those data, just go straight yeah. further. You you learn so much more, you progress so quickly. Yeah, I I, I think that. So if you were going back to your younger self and saying get a mentor and you didn't have one, how would you advise your younger self to get one? In other words, what should young people do if they don't have a mentor? Naturally. I think they need, they, they need to look for it. I, I just think uh, how I progressed. For the first 10 years when I was in Birmingham, I didn't have a proper mentor. No, okay. And yeah. so, so I thought that was a little bit lost of time. Yeah. Later on, I picked it up. But yeah. if I can use the first 10 years, I probably will be a lot more knowledgeable than I am now. I think that sometimes we are a little bit afraid. We don't know whether we should or not. We already have a supervisor. Should we look for a different thing? Now I look back. We ought to be brave to look for a better mentor to 
ask for it. Most of supervisors are willing to give if you ask for it, to collaborate. So yeah. you could collaborate. You can collaborate with anybody. So we should have found a better mentor to do it. That's great. That's great advice. Yeah. What's next for you? So what's exciting for you about the future? I mean, you're obviously doing amazing things already, but what, what do you see into the future and what excites you about that? I'm getting a big project, very big project, and hopefully get the contract assigned. You are getting one? Exciting. Before, before end of the year or before February, I'm getting another $20 million industrial wow. project. So I just hope I can deliver well, to deliver well for, for those customers and, and at the same time trying to build a succession plan for the center to move forward. Okay. At the same yeah. time, we are also doing some commercialization. So I hope within the next five years, those commercialization will back to the healthy track can move forward and yeah. some people can take over. So basically, I hope within the next five years, probably is the peak of our research. Then afterwards, I, I would like to take lesser role to try to train the next generation to take up a more leading role and become a more supportive role because I think it's important to build up a succession plan for yeah. the team. And maybe we can hang in here 10 years or 20 years, but we have to think about beyond. So, yeah, yeah you're thinking about this sort of who's going to be the you in the future. Yes, yeah, yeah. I yeah, think it's great. our responsibility to train, yeah. train the next generation yeah. to take over and on this foundation, how can they move forward in a much bigger scale task. And, and if we even look right into the future and you're just about to retire, what do you want people to say about you or your research or your career? What would you like them? In other words, I'm sort of asking you, what do you think success means for you? I actually never thought about it as a, to me, you know, I'm, I just thought the, the people will say she done her best. You know, she delivered what she said she's going to deliver. That's yeah. my customers normally says. Once our university uh, deputy transfer research ask one of the customers, why you work with her? What, what do you, what's different? They said because she delivers. Yeah. So I think as long as, People think that's that's who I am. I always trying to deliver. That's probably most important. I don't know what is success. You know, to me, I we don't really feel the success because we are in it. I guess mm. we to me just daily life, daily job. You yeah. know, I just do it. Just uh, get on with it. Do just your best. get on with it. Yeah. But one thing I probably would appreciate is Australian as a whole should recognize a little bit more engineering. You know, we have a Prime Minister Award for Science, but we never have Prime Minister's Award for Engineering. Mm, and the point. UK already created that because the science is different. Yeah. The criteria is different yeah. from engineering. Yeah. And can the world live without engineering? Certainly cannot. And Australia certainly needs engineering and technology and the innovation. It is different. Well, if they ever do have an award for engineering in Australia, I think it should go to you. <laughs> I'm not sure, but <laughs> but I, I, I that would make me happy because it's not just about award, it's about... Uh, we really achieve the recognition of engineering and the innovation. So I'm not saying science is not important, but we can't just recognize science. We need to recognize the importance mm. in 
technology and innovation and engineering mm. and the other part of the world start to recognize that now mm. so they are putting more emphasis to fill up this almost being ignored and neglected yeah. area yeah. to start to push yeah. this so I think it's that's the right way I think yeah. if Australian government can start to pay a little bit more attention then I think that you look at uh, whether it's a younger female or younger male but the future if you are promoting engineering, like Germany, how much they promote yeah. engineering, yeah. then you wonder why their country is so successful in engineering. Yeah. Ah, good point. Yeah. yeah. It's really about how do you recognize, how do you appreciate yeah. those, those sort yeah. of subjects. And then because everybody thinks you know, engineering in Germany is a such a high-respected area, then a lot of people want to do engineering. And then you attract good people. Exactly. And it becomes a positive cycle, yeah, isn't it? You know, yeah. So I, I heard in Germany a lot of engineering professors, PhD, they got priority in, in hotel booking, you know. Wow. <laughs> yes, just so well respected. That's, you know, that, that's, that's why then yeah. all the kids want to do engineering. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why the country is doing so yeah. well. You've got quite time. a long way to go on that one. Yeah. <laughs> but if yeah. you talk about a policy, who can make the policy? Government. They can change it if they yeah. want to. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. I sincerely thank Jinwa for her time and her openness. I loved hearing what she said about managing a team and delegating. For more insightful stories from the Women in Research project, please go to womeninresearchinoneword.org.au. Thank you for listening.